All right, everyone, it is 7.30 p.m. We will begin what is the last uh, evening course of our spring semester. It's been great to spend these evenings with all of you. We'll begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Blessed Father, as we, your sons and daughters, have celebrated the great mysteries of Paschal Tide and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, His glorious ascension to heaven and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we ask you to make us True disciples indeed, ready to preach your word everywhere we may go in ways great and small. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the last of our sessions on the resurrection of our Lord and its effects is the resurrection and prayer. So as we discuss this, we'll be going into where in the resurrection account we might learn some things about the authentic life of Christian prayer. Now, we might know from St. Paul's letter to the Romans that it is the Holy Spirit that prays within us. So we first acknowledge that divine truth, that true Christian prayer is a gift of the Holy Spirit, a welling up within our own selves, crying out, as St. Paul says, Abba, Father. So all Christian prayer is oriented towards God the Father. But we can learn, I perceive, some very important lessons about, again, <clears throat> because the life of prayer can be many and various, but in a sense, what's at the heart of the life of prayer. And I would like to return once again to the resurrection account from the Gospel of St. Luke, St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. We have read these before, but I wish to revisit them. We'll start first with the road or the walk to Emmaus, Luke 24 through 35. Excuse me, Luke 24, 13 through 35. Luke 24, 13 through 35. That very day, meaning Easter Sunday, two of the disciples were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem and talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near, and they went with him. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to condemnation to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us 
went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he appeared to be going on further, but they constrained him, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he walked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven gathered together, and those who were with them, who said, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. I've said before, this is in first place a confirmation of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and the sacramental reality. I think I've covered that enough times. But just see, again, many of the church fathers and spiritual writers have commented on this with great beauty, so I am no genius in just sort of trying to condense and reconvey this. The, the road to Emmaus is the whole pattern of the Christian life and a certain pattern of the Christian spiritual life or life of prayer, right? We each begin our own selves. We have our own expectations, things that we desire and are hoping for. We're going in our own direction. That's the nature of life and existence, all right? The life of prayer begins with, are we willing to grapple with the reality of existence? We have hopes and desires. Some are fulfilled. Some are frustrated. Some of our plans come to fruition. Some do not. So on and so forth. Are we ready to grip with that reality and strive to find meaning and purpose within that context? In one sense, that's just sort of the start of being human. But the life of prayer is predicated not as an escape from reality, but as entering into reality at its deepest level. So that's when Jesus comes alongside, though they don't recognize that it's Jesus. This is part of that reality, right? Are we always having supernatural outlook? That's part of the life of prayer. Because again, the resurrection is intimating a life of prayer. St. Paul's famous passage in Philippians, pray always. Right? A lot of spiritualized, what does that, how does that mean? Do, you, do we always have a supernatural outlook that we can know Jesus is there even when we don't recognize? Right? Always a supernatural outlook so that when Jesus does come alongside us, when in a sense, we're going to now, we've again, we, we come to grips with reality as it is, and we want to engage it. 
and we try to have a supernatural outlook, God is working in the midst of this reality that I am engaging, all right? You know, what does that mean when I go to buy T-shirts and they don't have my size and I get frustrated? I mean, that's, those mundane tasks don't always... Yes, that happened to me today, by the way, I'm saying. And you get frustrated and it interrupts your schedule and now you made yourself late for no purpose, right? To have supernatural outlook. Now that moment, shopping for T-shirts, is not the heights of the spiritual life. Because right? then when Jesus is alongside... When that moment comes, right, and this, this is that hinge moment, what were you conversing along the way? Are you the only one who doesn't know about these things, right? What things? Once again, of course he knows, obviously knows, absolutely knows. This is for freedom Christ set you free. <coughs> Above all, for the freedom of our heart to be able to freely converse with God about things we know he already knows but is not going to enslave our hearts not even if it was a very pleasant slavery he will not do it God will not make you well dressed soft slippered house slaves of this didn't he won't no matter how badly we want it Prayer is ultimately that free sharing of our hearts with revelation, right? He opens their minds to see all that referred to him in the sacred scriptures. That is the heart of what Christian prayer is. It's the acknowledgement of reality. I try to see the supernatural outlook in everything that I do. And then I have that moment where I am with Christ. And I am trying to bring my life and expectations and knowledge and so forth into contact with divine revelation. That is the heart of all Christian prayer. It does not exclude intercession. It does not exclude adoration. It does not exclude devotion. It does not exclude pilgrimage and so on. It does not exclude mortification. But at the heart of it all is what we call classically in the Christian life meditation. Lexio divina. Being in conversation with God. Right? Using our mind to reveal ourselves to God freely and then freely letting God's revelation impinge on us. That's the heart of all Christian prayer. Now again, most of us, when we learn, we learn by having revelation come to us. Our Father who art in heaven, right? That's letting, learning the Our Father is letting revelation form your mind. Learning the Hail Mary is letting revelation form your mind. Learning the Glory Be is letting revelation form your mind, right? The act of contrition is letting revelation inform your mind as well as the tradition of the family of God. Because you won't find the act of contrition in the scriptures as such. Right? You'll find many ways to express contrition in the scriptures. Right? Learning the stations of the cross is letting revelation come to your mind and the tradition of the family of God. 
See what I'm trying to say here? Saying the Holy Rosary is letting revelation, all the scriptural stories come on your end, but then also letting the tradition of the family of God, the church, inform you. And those are all great things. But we have to have a moment where we go, again, not beyond those things, deeper into those things. I think everyone knows if you have the ability to just crank out Our Father, Hail Mary, and Glory Be, you can say the name of the mystery, and you can say the prayers, and you can do it all in eight and a half minutes. If there's not conversation with God at some level, if there's not meditation at some level, that right, if there's not someone where have you not heard, what were you talking about on the way? This infinite God was born as a man in a, in a crib in Bethlehem and the angels sang in glory. Are you the one who hasn't heard these things? What things? And then you ponder it, right? On the third joyful mystery, right? In a sense. So on and so forth. Making the stations of the cross is good. But all I do is announce the station and kneel down and get up and drool down your lip until you do it the next time, all right? Okay, fine, you've made the stations of the cross. When you're a little kid, that's probably a really good thing to do. It's probably hard enough to coordinate genuflecting and saying words at the exact same time, right? Have you ever seen little kids do that? That's good. But we need to progress beyond that. I think we all know this, right? So that all of a sudden we're having Now, this is where the family of the life of God comes in. Because we're not all super mega geniuses. Or sometimes we have a headache, our back hurts. We've been at work all day and just got there in time for the stations. We had, you know, a parent call us and give us the business about something, or a kid call us, say something, etc. And we're not, oh, well, that's good. There's a meditation there because I don't have the freedom to generate this whole conversation. I think that's in the road to Emmaus where it's saying the Christian life of prayer is not just sort of one person before the abyss of God. It's the two disciples. And they're talking about what some women of their group said and what two other disciples heard, right? They're in that dialogue. And since their dialogue with Christ is a community dialogue, they're having it individually. We hoped this. And some women of our group said this. And then two others who were with us saw this. So that's where you're doing your meditation, your mental prayer, the Stations of the Cross. St. Alphonsus the Gore says this, and St. Jose Maria says this, right? Or you do it, St. Therese of Lisieux says this, St. Teresa of Avila says this, and so on and so forth, right? So that's getting into the whole, that's where, but we should still, in that whole big, beautiful context, which I hope you find that exciting and uplifting and not overwhelming and terrifying. I'm saying within that whole context comes me trying to dialogue with God. Me trying to dialogue with Christ. Trying to answer that question, what things? Building that rhythm into our life. Finding a little time every morning where you do your own meditation. And you use whatever you use, right? I'm a big fan of the Magnificat booklet because 
I have to carry my fat breviary around, and carrying my fat breviary and my fat daily Roman Missal is too much. So I get the little Magnificat that's published into monthly happy things, and so I can meditate on the scriptures of the daily Mass. And I can kneel down. Now again, in this, it's not, this is not the a whole catechism. In this there is, I kneel down and adore God for being God, and I make an act of contrition for my sin. I pray for my parish and people who are sick and my family and so on and so forth. But then that's all centered around meditation. And I can use the gospel for the day or the first reading or the psalm or those things together individually throughout or the opening prayer. Right? The magnificent is nice because they have even a little meditation written in there. It's really just slow slog, and I can read the meditation and try to get my mind moving. But that's the real heart of Christian prayer. Orienting oneself with Christ. Again, not utterly alone. What the family of God has also said. Again, which I think is clearly evidenced in this Emmaus story. Right? Women said this. Some disciples said this. We hoped this. All those things are their dialogue with Christ. So all of that should be the food for our dialogue with Christ. And once again, not excluding intercession, not excluding adoration, not excluding devotion, not excluding, but if you really start to master meditation, if you really start to discipline in that, then you know what? Your rosary, rosary praying just goes. Your stations of the cross go. When you go on pilgrimage someplace, you're not just touristing a holy place. You can go there and have conversations about the beauty I saw here, the talk I heard from the guide, so on and so forth, because I know how to grab these things from the family of God in dialogue with the Lord about them. And then when I'm in dialogue with the Lord, I can pray for, right? Whatever. The pair of staff stay zealous in their work. The parishioners and leadership stay faithful and don't get discouraged. These people having trouble in their marriage find a solution, give them light. And these kids, so on and so forth, right? I enter into my my intercession right out of the heart of meditation. I kneel down in front of the tabernacle and can just adore God right out of the heart of meditation. Super probably when you're doing this, you're also going to come up with favorite prayers, right? Because you're going to be going through what the family of God has given and you're going to like this and like that and like the other, right? You're going to think that St. Therese is the greatest of all time because God inspires that in you or St. Ignatius of Loyola is the greatest of all time and that God inspires that in you, whatever it might be. But it all comes from, right, this heart of what things. And we're trying to constantly dialogue with that. Does that make sense? Again, so this is not meant to be like a how to pray class, but just say, see in the resurrection, that principal resurrection account, see that in that account. And then see how it is oriented towards the Holy Eucharist. Now again, they are praying in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament because in the presence of Jesus, right? But see how it's not a lot of their initial conversation, right? His opening their minds to the Scriptures is before 
the celebration of the Eucharist. That's why the Mass is structured the way it is, right? Scripture, proclamation, sermon, confession of faith, then Eucharist, right? And it's, that's good for us to be aware of because, yes, prayer in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament is awesome, like super awesome, but cannot always be for all kinds of very practical reasons, right? I wanted to pray on Monday at 10.30, and that's when they're vacuuming the church. I wanted to pray on Friday evening, and there's a wedding rehearsal, and so on and so forth, right? I can't always be, and I'm a priest, I can be a lot more easily in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, but that's my whole point, though, is, yeah, I do not in any way, shape, or form want to talk down praying in front of the Blessed Sacrament. That's super like, yes, 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 it's wonderful, and it can be so uplifting, and God pours out many graces. When you go and put your, you make the effort to put yourself in, right, know that when you come to the church, it's an act of faith, because you're saying, God is here, and God will reward that, absolutely, yes. Right? So that act of faith will always be rewarded. But we should never say, well, because I couldn't get to the church, I don't pray today, right? I think we all understand that. We should not fall into that. Well, I couldn't be in the church, so I don't pray today. No, you, you absolutely can pray today. Finding places disposed to prayer. I think this is also the interesting thing about the road to Emmaus. Note the solitary nature of it. Their dialogue with Christ doesn't happen in a city. It happens in between places. It's outside the hustle and bustle. It's away from where all of the activity it is. It's away from where all the noise is. It's in the in-between, heading out to the country. That's a key for us. Our prayer should be away from the hustle and bustle. Is there, right? That's why churches, we try to keep quiet. We do a fairly good job of that here. Is there also a place in our homes that can be disposed to prayer? Do we know of other little, right, places where we can go and be quiet and be disposed to prayer? Those are important things. Because when we make our time, that we want to talk. Because again, that's one thing to remember. It's not the resurrection happening over and over again every single day, so we're not in the exact, like the road to Mass was a special moment. Our Lord throughout his whole life teaches us a lot of things to dispose oneself to prayer, right? He goes off to quiet places. To my great chagrin, he does it early in the morning, right? When I became aware of that, I knew life is going to be tough for me as a Christian, right? Father Eric, I'm a night owl. I am too. No one cares, all right? You got to get up early and, and pray, So those kinds of rhythms of life, but it's all answering that question. What things? Now, to give a little reality of the mysticism of this, I'd like to read a little bit from the first chapter of the book of Revelation, which always gets everyone very excited, all right? Revelation, ooh, all right? But this is Revelation 1, Verse 4 through 8. Right. Revelation 1, 4 through 8. 
As a sidebar, this is the passage that's read every year at the Chrism Mass on Holy Thursday, well, whatever, whenever it is, right? Theoretically, it's on the morning of Holy Thursday. This is the second reading at the Chrism Mass. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, right? God. Mm-hmm. Grace to you peace from who is and was and is to come. There's a whole ocean of spirituality in that half sentence alone. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne. That's the heavenly priest, right? The seven great archangels who stand before the throne of God. The seven heaven, the three seven greatest heavenly spirits before the throne of God. So grace to you and peace from the eternal reality of God and from the heavenly host. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, praise to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, the Lord God who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. No, I bring that up because that is the voice of the resurrected Christ, right? You might hear this in Luke and Matthew. All power in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all, right? That's the infinite divine command. As my Father conferred a kingdom on me, I confer one on you. So that's the divine resurrected Christ speaking, who is, who was, who is to come. So the grace and peace from the infinite God, from the heavenly courts, that you are able to know because the God-man redeemed you by His blood and made us a kingdom. Priests, for His God and Father, to Him be glory forever and ever Amen, right? To, to have that key in your mind. This is the one to whom I pray. This is the glory to which I am lifted up into when I pray. Again, and believe you me, on a February morning at 6.15 a.m., it can be a little hard to get to that spot. I mean, so don't, please don't understand and get the notion that every time you pray is going to be this explosively cosmic reality. Right? Sometimes... You know, just you got a sniffle and a headache and saying to Jesus, staying awake for you, Lord. That's the victory of prayer that day. Right. Fair enough. You have a bad turn in your day and it's super distracting. And all you can do is fight distraction over and over again. That's, the, that's, that's what you give to God. But that's that same infinite God who greets you in the heavenly realms because of the blood of Jesus that made you a priest and a kingdom to the glory of God his Father. That's the one that calls you to prayer. That's the one that calls you to adore. Like to be in that divine service is joy and peace. 
And then we should always, again, it can be tough psychologically. But it is the act of faith to say, that God, that Savior, that Jesus says to you what things, right? I'm interested in your life. I'm interested to know what you've got going on. I'm interested to have a conversation with you. You are sleepy and you're distracted and you stayed up way too late watching that movie Then you should have. You know it. I know it, says God, but quietly and nicely. But I still want to have conversation with you. Stop worrying about your 10 o'clock appointment for now. Or if you are worried, let's talk about it. See, to have the conviction of faith that that's the God who loves us and redeemed us in his blood. That he didn't come to heal the well, but the sick. He didn't come to save the just, but sinners. He praised his God and Father that he revealed the mysteries to the childlike, not to the wise and the learned. Though some wise and learned people have also figured it out in the course of history, so that's good. That's the life of prayer. Right? So again, I know that was not a like instruction on prayer. As we move into the question, if you want to ask specific questions on how to pray, better habits in prayer, I'm perfectly fine with that. Right? But I just want to end with, I think there's a, and I don't mean this to all be controversial, but I think there's a really beautiful icon of this piece. Some of you may have heard the name of uh, Father Altman up in La Crosse right, preaching strongly and so forth, getting a hard time for it. You know what's been amazing? All these, all these like sermons his that I've listened to, and not all of them by any stretch, or these interviews. Now, don't get me wrong. He gets pretty fired up, but never angry. It was so fascinating the other day. What, what has happened is the Bishop of La Crosse has asked for his resignation, and, and he's doing it so unbelievably the right way. He's saying, I don't think this is just, so I'm going to address it according to the right channels. I'm not going to rant and rave. I'm not going to get all angry. He was super fired up talking about what a good man he thought his bishop was. Like, he's like, in the interview, like, almost yelling, he's a good man. I've had great conversations with him. I really, you know, I really like, I mean, that's, I, again, I don't know Father Altman personally, but I have a suspicion that's someone who prays. I'm guessing that. Because I'm saying that's the power when you have a really bad turn. Like, I think he's getting old-fashioned jobbed, right, on a practical level. But then again, it's easy for me to stand out say, and say that's bad. But even as this goes on, there's no ranting and raving. There's no calling names. There's no all this, right? There's, this is what I have to do, right? That's where are you going to live? I don't know. Figure it out. <laughs> When's this going to be resolved? I'm, they said it could be up to a year. I guess, well, who knows? <laughs> and I just bring that up because um, if you go to a web, there's a beautiful, uh, what I think is a super like bright, like these are smart people who work hard, but also want to give a very level presentation of what's going on. It's called the Pillar. If you go to PillarCatholic.com, P-I-L-L-A-R Catholic.com. They're news guys, they're journalists, right? 
Ed Flynn, uh, J.D. Flynn, Ed Condon, whatever the names are, doesn't matter, it's not important. And if you go and, like, where you can read about these things, and again, I think it's beautiful in the contemporary life. Like, do I think what's happening is beautiful? Super no. It seems awful. I would really like it to not happen to me. It sounds awful. It sounds awful. But, like, watch this soul go through it with such serenity, right? Such peace. Did you listen to his Sunday sermon? Yeah, I did. Not quite so serious. No, no, but I, 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 did, I did. No, this is what I mean by serenity. He is speaking strongly, but he's not angry. No. That was a sermon that was chock full of gratitude. That's a sermon that was filled, thank you for this, thank you for the other. I'm proud of what we did here. I'm proud of what we did there. Yeah, I think this is happening to me for these reasons. Now again, he strikes me as the kind of guy that he can get jacked up talking to you about his favorite flavor of the day at Culver's Ice Cream. He just seems like that kind of person. Like, you got to get the mint chocolate chip. It's great. I don't know who would not get it. <laughs> but he, of course, he holds to divine reality, so he takes divine things more seriously. So yes, I get what you're saying, and I'm not saying he's not passionate. I'm not saying he doesn't get... But like I said, I heard him just use the same tone of voice and whatnot, talking about, you know, heretics and whatnot who go after him, as he did, again, he's shouting about how, what a good guy he thinks his bishop is. And this is the bishop's one who's jamming him up. <laughs> That's pretty admirable, I think. I mean, you could just bite the bull and say, I don't know why he's doing this. And say, no, he's a good guy. I like him. We had great conversations. I think he's got all kinds of pressure on him, and I wish he wasn't doing this. But he's a good man. I know he is. So I, I, my, my point is, that's a public that you can go and read about, and I think read about it in a very well-written way, because we all know people can present things in a very antagonistic way, and I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in people presenting trials in the Christian life in an authentic way and having someone who's suffering and going through it. And in my opinion, this is super not fair. My guess is it'll be proved to not be not fair. But I mean, you don't know. And what peace? I would hope that I would have that kind of... I don't know if I would. All right. But I would... Yeah, Tracy's like, I've seen him in staff meetings. There's no way he would. He'd lose it. Right. So, but my point is that's what can come from the heart of prayer. I think there's a really good contemporary example in Father Altman in that. Again, I'm not saying he's infallible. I'm not saying everything he says is divine law. I happen to think most of it's pretty on the point, but I mean in terms of going through this with a life of prayer. And I always say because also he, he, doesn't, he doesn't talk about his interior life as such, but he talks about prayer. Like you can, t- you can tell that his prayer life is what? He's not getting through this because people on the internet like him. That's not why he's feeling good about this. He's feeling good about it because he's rooted in Christ. Which is nice. I think that, right? Because it's nice to know that like Saint Cecilia wasn't just a stoic 14-year-old who like gutted it out during hard times. No, rather, we have every reason to believe the exact same thing. She had an interior life. So when things went super south on her, she could endure it. Right? What was, you read these old Roman accounts, the things that freaked out the Roman pagans was when they executed all these Christians, they were singing. They were singing the Psalms, they were singing hymns they had written. Right? That only comes from 
and into your peace with the life of prayer. And quite frankly, when you're not going through all of that suffering and whatnot, that's when you get the great mystics like Teresa of Lisieux and Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and Mary Magdalene de Pazzi and so on. And so, anyways, all right, that's a sermon. We are at the 35-minute mark. I thank you for attentiveness. Are there any questions you'd like to ask about what I've presented, the life of prayer in general, or any other thing that might be on your mind? Um, so I've read, and I'm not sure if it's in the catechism, that there's three forms of prayer, vocal, meditation, and contemplation. Maybe is the third one. Um, and you're speaking of prayer. Um, well, I'll use an example. When you lead us in the rosary on first Saturdays, say, let's pray these mysteries of the rosary while meditating on these mysteries of the rosary. So while we're vocalizing the mysteries of the rosary, we're also meditating. Um, yes, well said. Can you talk about how you're doing that at the same time? Absolutely, yes. So the Christian life has identified three essential ways of praying. Vocally, I hope that's understood to everyone, prayers you say out loud, either ones you've memorized or extemporaneously, right? Mental prayer or meditation, prayers you say with the power of your mind. And then the third is contemplation. Now the first two, vocal prayer and mental prayer, very often go together, right? The rosary would be a great example of that. You're vocally saying prayers while you're also meditating on mysteries of the life of Christ. The Mass is like this. Right? Things are being vocally said while we're trying to raise our minds, men, mental, mentis, meditation, up to God. Now the Christian tradition has always said that mental prayer as such is a higher form of prayer. So it's like vocal prayer is number one, meditations above that, and you can really lift vocal prayer up. Right? Vocal prayer, always profitable. Vocal prayer with meditation, more profitable. Pure meditation, incredibly profitable. The third part, contemplation. Contemplation is regarded as prayer that is a pure gift from God. It's when you receive the gift to go beyond, instead of using your mind to project concepts to try to reach out to God. It's God reaching out to you. Right? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it so much entered into the hearts of men what God has ready. Right? The ultimate reality of God is beyond any human concept. So we use all kinds of conceptual things to talk about God because we have to make sense of all this and we get them mostly from revelation let God talk about himself. But God's ultimate reality, right? God exists before concepts, if you can think about that. Before there is the ability to conceive about anything, God is. So no human being has the power to conceptualize God as such. The old maxim of St. Anselm must be... Theology is dangerous because the more you say about God, the less you can say about God. So contemplation is those moments when God just reaches out to a particular soul. And in a sense, uh, it's the psalm, be still and know that I am God. You go yeah, beyond 
word, beyond image, beyond language or conceptualization, and just meditate on God as such. That, of course, is the highest form of the spiritual life. Christian theology is always that number one, that is gift of God. So God can give that to any particular soul. So like apparitions would be contemplation writ mega large. Because that's not, an apparition is not someone conceptual, that's just God, boom, here's the Virgin Mary, here I am. But then in the individual soul, right, the ecstasy of St. Teresa. A Thomas Aquinas, when he is just, they can, he's just praying, he's utterly still. When he comes out of prayer, he says, compared to what I have just seen, everything I have written is as dung and straw. Right? So some of the highest theology ever written is utterly transcended by this pure gift of God. We can dispose ourselves to that, right? Through having a life of mental prayer, trying to reach out to God, making ourselves silent, not being attached to worldly things, etc. That disposes us, right? Because the more conceptual things we hang on to, the harder it can be to lift up or have God touch us. But at the end of the day, that's pure gift of God. Someone could live a very disciplined life and not reach contemplation through no fault of their own. Yes, I saw one in there. Yeah, in the early church, I've always wondered the type of depth of faith that people would be willing to be thrown to lions, wrapped in oil, and used as human torches, crucified, rather than simply say, I do not believe in, in Jesus Christ, and they could, and they could live. Is that the, would that be like the contemplative prayer? Or the God no, that's not contemplative prayer. That's faith. That is, that is holding to the gift of faith. So that's no special revelation. That's no special this, that, or the other. That's faith, right? The old, the old maxim, there's only one real faith, the faith of the martyr. So either you're the white martyr, you sacrifice things throughout your life till you die, or you're the red martyr, someone actively kills you. For your faith. So we must not see the faith of martyrs and the faith of the as some special faith, as some unique thing. It's not contemplation or any other such thing. It's just faith. It's faith that hasn't been wrapped in two millennia of civilization building. It's faith that doesn't have St. Peter's Basilica and the Camino de Santiago and Chartres and the Jesuits. Uh, so on, it doesn't have, right? We can say such things as Christendom and know what that means. They would have no conception of what that means. The same God that gives them that faith gives you faith. You have to, it's exactly the same. There's no difference from the faith you have and the faith they have. In fact, yours should be better because you know more about it than they did. We've had more time to meditate on it. We're stuck with things like believe, like we feel really urgent need to be uh, at home in the world, right? Americans have this problem in a huge way. We feel the hell-bent desire to say that this is a godly nation. The early Christians had no problem with that. 
They knew the Roman Empire comes, goes, doesn't matter to me. Right? Now, my dad's a Roman senator, so that makes things a little sticky. Uh, I'm in the patrician imperial guard, so this is not going to work out real well for me. But the thing itself doesn't matter. Right? St. Agnes, right? If the eyes that I don't desire want this body, let it be destroyed. Who cares? What do I need to have all this? What do I feel the need to the Roman Empire to do right and just and all this? That Why should I think that? We're stuck with all this other nonsense that we've draped onto it for two millennia, right? If, if we say, oh, this parish church, nobody lives there. The people who do live there don't have real faith. They have cultural faith. They don't go to Mass anymore. They don't go to confession anymore. Their kids all live elsewhere. We're going to close this parish. Oh, my gosh, that's so horrible. It's so sad, right? We're burdened with that. And so we tend to think the martyrs have special faith that we... No, same faith. We just got all this other crap hanging on to it. That we're in an age where very, I think, happily, though difficultly, God's wiping all that away. That make sense? I'm contemplating. Yep. But it's, again, it's not... We must... You cannot see it as... The faith that the Chinese people in underground have church right now today is the same faith given to you and I. Exact same. How we respond to it, that could be different. But it's the exact same faith given the exact same way. Right? You just can't serve God, right? Easier for a camel to pass through an eye of needle than a rich man to go to heaven, which is bad news for pretty much every American. Because any American who can flush a toilet is richer than any 14th century king. Yeah, you got hot water and you can flush flush. So the dysentery and infection rates are way down. You have penicillin, right, and all that kind of stuff. So again, we've, if that saying from Christ should be super terrifying to basically everyone who lives in this great nation. Does the church have relatively low expectations of the faithful in terms of our prayer life? Because what you hear a lot of times is, if you don't have a prayer life, start with five minutes, start with 15 minutes, you know, it's just like, it just seems like we're not asking a lot of ourselves in terms of how much time we spend in prayer, the time and the nature of the time that we spend in prayer. And right, this is a tricky one, right? Teresa of Avila says, I despair of the salvation of anyone who doesn't pray, pray at least 30 minutes a day. Right. right, that's a heck of a thing to say, right? Because, now this is going to be my theoretic. This is my theory of the case. Um, when a Christendom arose, when there was a Christian nation and the civil powers were all Christian and they had laws that enshrined the tenets of Christian morals and many times even faith as such, and it gave rise to this Huge life of devotion. And again, you understand, this is a time when the number of the clergy and the religious was almost equal to the number of the lay faithful. I mean, they were almost the exact same amounts. Right? Well, as time went on, right, and that became stable and wealthy, we started to have, again, this is my theoretic. The life of prayer always requires sacrifice. It always requires you 
to reject certain things. When that narrative seizes hold, even dominates the civil power and totally livens the nation, right? And then the continent, and then other continents. The danger for that is you're going to have people who start taking those things for granted, right? And that's what begins to happen, right? You cannot serve two masters. So where does it begin? In the wealthy and the powerful. They try to control the nomination of bishops. They try, you know, simony in the clergy becomes a huge problem because now wealthy, powerful people want their children to control parishes and dioceses and religious orders. And, they, and that, right, today is the feast of St. Gregory the Seventh, right, who had to uh, excommunicate and put under, excommunicate Henry the Fourth and put the entire nation of Germany under interdict. Interdict means you can't say the sacraments. And so Henry the Fourth famously travels barefoot through the snows to the papal uh, fortress of Casanova, and there on the walls wails for three days, repenting of his sins. Gregory the Seventh happily welcomes him back in, hears his confession, and forgives him. Right, because if the king's excommunicated, then no one has to listen to him. Right. Stores him to his kingdom. He goes back. Six months later, he leads his armies in and <laughs> sacks Casanova and imprisons Gregory VII and executes him. All right, so this is going on. You can't serve God and mammon because the, everybody, there's no alternative to the Christian gospel. And it starts, it's the beginnings of the long, slow burn that starts to seep into all of this. The reforms of Trent are incredibly powerful because it goes right at the clergy and right at the... No more of this stupidity in the clergy. Get all this junk that comes from the aristocracy out. And they did, right? Get it all out of the religious orders. The Jesuits really were super about it. Get, and they do that. Now, the problem that arose with that, because now you have the, the Protestant ethic within there... And the Protestant sola fide really harmed the lay Christian's notion of prayer. It's not that Calvinists and Lutherans don't ever pray, but there wasn't, right, because they really did away with a lot of the devotional structure that aided the life of prayer. Because if you're a pig farmer in 12th century France, right, you're not literate, the devotional life is super important to you being able to meditate. Like super duper, because you can't read this book and so on and so forth. So Protestantism now, number one, physically gets rid of a lot of things and doesn't only until much later have this emphasis on the life of prayer. Again, I'm not saying that Protestants never prayed, but that was not their, their concern was sola fide, get right with God, live the moral life. It wasn't about devotion in this interior format. And that just starts, to, so you've got both the, the war between the aristocracy and the clergy that has existed in Europe for a long, 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 long time to ruinous effects in the French Revolution and so forth, right, created in an unspoken way this divide between the laity and because the, the aristocracy were all lay. And of course, the vast majority of the population, their economic well-being depended on the aristocracy, not on the clergy. So a rhythm of work starts to develop that the clergy are always trying to get people to pray and sanctify, right? This famously called Devotio Moderna, Thomas Akempis and the imitation of Christ, right? The Stations of the Cross from St. Francis and St. Thomas were rough contemporaries. 
Let's try to do things to get people to have the life of prayer. I think you have that whole push forward. In the United States of America, you have to come and try to colonize this vast, wild country. So you've got faithful moving established bases way ahead of the clergy. Way, way, right? Famous Father Mazzucchelli came to our neck of the woods here in Wisconsin and found Irish and Italian Catholics who had been living in whatever you would call it, concubinage. Right? He would convalidate all kinds of marriages, admitted confession in years and so on and so forth. So you have these people who are living now a life, two generations, three generations of life, where they don't have regular access to the sacraments, to formation, so on and so forth, that only gets relieved. People forget the Germans and the Irish, when they immigrate much later, bring hordes of the clergy with them. When that comes to the United States, as it's starting to, in a sense, civilize itself, post-Civil War, industrialize itself, it's becoming stable ecclesiastically. Parishes, bishops, dioceses, schools, printing presses, pamphlets, all that kind of stuff. It's becoming stable at the exact same time as the Industrial Revolution is going on. And I would contend that nothing has done more harm to Christian faith and practice than the Industrial Revolution. The church still... Leo XIII made a good effort at it, but it's just, we have not figured out how to live a Christian life in a non-agrarian setting. The war for Sundays would be the great... I mean, Sunday is gone now. I mean, the war for it... You had Sabbath laws, and so they're trying to make Marx at it, right? So on and so forth. And this happened all over Europe as well. I think it's one of the reasons why Christianity flourished so much in Africa and Asia in a pre... I mean, Africa really still hasn't gone through an industrial revolution. Asia has, but they, they still have those tenets of faith there. So you have all this activity, the work schedule, and nine to five, and all this, that... And you're trying to convey a still, quiet, interior life to these group of people. So that's, I'm trying to build, it's like, the Second Vatican Council tries to scream it out loud by the universal call to holiness. Because in that effect, it became really easy to say, send the kids to school, go to Mass on Sunday. And then hit these markers, right? No fish on Fridays, Stations of the Cross during Lent, First Friday devotions... That was all good. I mean, don't we, that was all good. But I think the problem we saw in that is when that went away, nothing was left. We thought to ourselves, well, because theoretically, right, if I'm like St. Cecilia, my guess is St. Cecilia would have been right there for States of the Cross and First Friday. Like, I'm sure she would have showed up to all of it, right? But if it goes away, she's fine. Well, in America, that all went away, and it wasn't fine. So as we thought that these markers of devotion equaled a life of prayer, turned out that wasn't actually true. And we're trying to build back from that. So those built an external life, but not an internal Yeah, I think it was a good effort in this madcap industrial, post-industrial, right? The whole world goes to war. That created, right? 
Europe never recovers from the First World War and trying to conceive of itself as a nation of religion. It's in its philosophical death spiral to our own day. I mean, the utter rejection of God on the European continent happens after the First World War with little pockets of resistance here and there, but nothing meaningful. I mean, the, Italy is lost. Poland is near gone. There's a sort of pocket of conservative resistance in there, but it's all but conquered. Ireland, utterly lost. So there's no place in Europe that holds to faith, much less a practice of faith. So the only developed country where that exists at all is the United States. Mexico had a shot, but their revolution, they all went nuts and murdered each other, and they, again, they're still digging out of the horror of that we can't even conceive of, right? So in the midst of this, clergy trying to interject devotional life, right? The nuns were trying to do it. The nuns were trying to teach the girls to pray. They were. But then you've got to, right? Those factory jobs were good paying but grim. They were not godly cultures. They were not family-oriented societies, etc. Right? So trying to stick, if I can rally them to devotion, in that I can get them to pray in the midst of all this, everything that's going on. I'm giving a dramatic read, but I mean really the history of the United States from basically the War of 1812 until 1955 is just constant madcap, win at all costs, do whatever is necessary to forge this wilderness into the greatest empire the world has ever known. And we did it in like 60 years. I mean, it's a true record-breaking, history-making endeavor, but it's going to be really hard, really, really hard to have true interior life incur within that on a mass scale. Now, the nice thing in the United States is pockets of it are everywhere. There is great believing interior people all over the place, but not on a whole national institutional level. That was very, there's like, that was like 20 books I've read to get to all that <laughs> spot. It's the, it's the endless war between God and mammon. It is the endless contest, right? When in the book of Revelation chapter 12, Satan and his angels go to war in heaven and Michael and his angels are sent and defeat them and cast them down to the earth. And the choirs of heaven sing out, Woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you. His wrath is great, for he knows his time is short. So the utter defeat of the devil does not preclude the wrath of the devil. Christ keyed this out quite clearly, all right? You cannot serve God and mammon. Not you shouldn't, or it'll be hard. Like, even the rich through the eye of a needle, that's at least a shot, right? Easier for a camel to go through an eye than a rich man to go to. Still possible, right? You can't serve God and mammon. You can't want to become a wealthy nation and be a godly nation. It's not possible. And so then it's really left down to the individual. And that's where we are. And there's a lot of good things that happen from that because then individuals get together 
and form nice groups and do good things. And there's a lot of people who do rally to this message. But I just think we shouldn't be shocked when it's not a whole wide narrative. Because, I mean, I sent my kid to Catholic school, how come they don't practice the faith? Well, because you're drunk who never prayed and lived a worldly life. That's why. Any other questions? You know. Et cetera, et cetera. Right, you see, it's a short stripe from this into the rot in the church, so, et cetera. Okay. So how come there's still hangers on them? Because God is real. Because God exists, and Christ is risen from the dead, and the spirit of grace is poured out over the whole earth. And he is the shepherd, and the sheep hear his voice. Many are called, few are chosen, says Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Sheep still hear his voice all the time because he has risen the firstborn from the dead and the tides of history do not affect him. The tides of victory affect us. <laughs> they don't affect him. The gates of hell might get upright. Christ never said anywhere the gates of hell won't get the upper hand on the church. He said they won't prevail. But he is, he is still living. Yeah, the firstborn from the dead and he calls out and people hear. Sometimes in the most shocking ways. Sometimes in totally ordinary ways. And they're all great. But they're not culture, they're not civilization. Right? God didn't save the Roman Empire, he decimated it and it got run over by a thousand pagan kings. So, can I ask you, so what happened during 